You're listening to the Word of Hope, sermons preached at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Today's sermon is preached by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You may be seated. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear Chloe and Megan and Jacob, dear saints of God, friends of Jesus, The Holy Spirit has for us today a great and wonderful sign of water turned to wine, done by our Lord Jesus at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And we want to consider this miracle this morning under the theme of joy. But on the way there, I want to pick up a little bit of ancient wisdom from the church. I'm going to, maybe we'll play a little game. I'm going to quote three different lines from three different liturgies. And see if you can, see if you can get the theme, what they're, what they're getting to. First is this. From the baptismal rite, the flood prayer, written by Luther for the occasion of baptism, this line. Through baptism in the Jordan of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, you sanctified and instituted all waters to be a blessed flood and a lavish washing away of sin. Next, from the funeral liturgy, and specifically from the rite of Christian burial, the prayer of the blessing of the grave before the service begins. And the line from that prayer goes like this. O Lord Jesus Christ, by your three-day rest in the tomb, you hallowed the graves of all who believe in you, promising resurrection to our mortal bodies. And then third, our own text from Luke, from John chapter 2 is mentioned at the address at the beginning of the rite of holy matrimony with this little sentence. Our Lord blessed and honored marriage with His presence and first miracle at Cana in Galilee. Now, did you get, did you get the theme that runs through all three of these things? It's this idea, and I, and I think really it's an astonishing uh, thing to consider. Jesus uh, makes things holy. He sanctifies things. He sets things apart. So that if Jesus goes into the water of the Jordan River for baptism, then all water all throughout the earth is holy, fit for the Lord's gift of baptism. Or if Jesus is content to be laid in a tomb, then he makes every grave throughout the entire world a holy place so that when the Lord's Christians go to be buried, we can be content that this, in fact, is a good work and not a sin. After all, Jesus never sinned, and this includes his rest in the tomb, his burial. So the grave cannot be a godless place because God himself was buried. And then with marriage... I suppose there was a danger in the early church of thinking that because Jesus was never married, he never had a wife, and never had any children, that the state of marriage was somehow less holy than the state of chastity and abstinence. But then we look with Jesus going with his disciples and with his mother to a wedding in Cana and choosing that occasion to accomplish this, his first sign, turning water into wine. And we say, look, Jesus is there at a wedding. He is blessing marriage. And not just that marriage of that particular bride and bridegroom on that day there in Galilee, but 
all weddings where the Lord God takes a son of Adam and a daughter of Eve and He makes the two into one flesh. So that when Jesus goes to a wedding, He is giving His own approval and blessing to this bold and courageous act of a man and a woman forming a family together. Do you see that? Jesus blesses and He sanctifies wherever He goes and with whatever He does. Now, some of you are going to like this piece of wisdom from the church so much that you're going to say, well, look, Pastor, uh, Jesus uh, not only blesses marriage in Cana, He also blesses drinking wine. (laughs) And that's right. In fact, Jesus doesn't turn the wine into water. (laughs) He turns the water into wine. There, and, and a lot of it. There's six water pots there, set apart for the Jewish rites of purification, and they're, they're huge. Each one of them would hold 20 to 30 gallons. And when Mary uh, sets the servants to obey the voice of Jesus, he tells them to go and fill these huge pots with water, and being filled, they're to draw some and take it to the chief waiter, the master of the feast, and they take it, and he's astonished. In fact, in fact, and, and this really uh, kind of sticks out in the text when you're reading through it. I mean, John really slows down at this point, and he's going to spend two verses to record the conversation between this feast master and the bridegroom, uh, not just about the fact that the water's been turned to wine, but that it's been turned into very good wine. When the master, here's the text, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom over and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. Then when people are drunk, the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine back until right now. You see, Jesus turns the water into wine, but more, he turns the water into good wine And that word good in the text is the word beautiful or noble. It's the best. I always imagine, uh, I think I've told you guys this before, every time I read this text, I think of St. John, who, you know, uh, was the oldest of, or the youngest of the disciples. He was the last to live, the only one to die of natural causes. He he went to, uh, church history tells us, he went to Ephesus and was pastor of the church there and bishop of all of the churches of Asia. He was exiled from there to Patmos where he had the revelation and then back in Ephesus. And and so he would have been pastor of, I mean, kind of multiple congregations. And, and I think of him going to visit his people and going to sit down to eat with them and to drink with them. And every time that John would be handed a glass of wine, he would look and he would remember Cana, and he would, he would smell the wine, and, and he would taste the wine at dinner, and he would think, no, not as good. <laughs> not as good as this wine. And now we're getting really to the point. And the point is not that we should drink very good wine. But the point is that Jesus chose this particular place, a wedding, to perform this particular sign turning water into wine, and this is his first sign. Imagine for a moment that you didn't know that the text of the Scriptures never told us what the first miracle of Jesus was. And you were trying to guess. Now, what do you think you would guess? I mean, the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on water are probably the most popular of the miracles of Jesus. It demonstrates his 
His power over nature and His care for His people. The transfiguration, that's a a signal sign where Jesus uh, shows forth His glory and the power of His divine nature shining through His flesh. Perhaps that would be the first to indicate who He is. Most of the miracles that Jesus performs are healing miracles. He heals the blind and the lame and the lepers. But my guess would be, at least in my own imagination, for a first miracle, that Jesus would turn, would raise someone from the dead. I think there's a handful of resurrections, maybe four times, where Jesus wakes someone up from the sleep of death. And this, after all, is what Jesus came to do, to bring life into our death, rescue us from sin, death, and the devil. So maybe the raising of Lazarus would be the first, or the raising of Jairus' daughter. But this starts to get at the surprise of this sign, the turning water into wine. It's not, it's not a healing. It's not a restoration. It's something more. Or imagine, imagine this. Imagine if you didn't know what signs and miracles Jesus would do at all. What kind of things He would accomplish according to His power. All you knew is this. That Jesus would come and establish His kingdom. But you don't know what it will look like. Imagine that the only thing you knew was that the Son of God is coming down from heaven and He has all authority and all power and He's going to demonstrate that power so that all the world would believe in Him. Now, what do you think He would do? What would His acts of power be? Again, I imagine some kind of government that Jesus would sit on a throne and rule a nation or maybe He'd rule all the nations. He would be a powerful king with a powerful kingdom. Surely His first act, His first sign, would be an act of war, an act of overthrow, an act of destruction. At least, that's how it is in my imagination. And I don't think, even if that's what we consider the the first act of Jesus ought to be, I, I don't think the news of the coming of the Son of Man in power would at first be comforting. At least if we didn't know what He was coming for and we didn't know what He was going to do, then we would surely be afraid. I mean, here we are, right? In our sin, which is nothing less than a rebellion against God, constantly trying to throw off God's commandments, running for from His judgments. According to St. Paul, we're God's enemies, children of wrath, born for destruction, as we confess together when we gathered here this morning that we are poor, miserable sinners that deserve God's temporal and eternal punishment. And so we would rightly expect from God temporal and eternal punishment. That God's first works and acts would be signs of severity, signs of judgment, or signs of condemnation. That He would come and give you what you deserve. That He would bring God's frown and anger and wrath. But Jesus, in a small town in Galilee, at a wedding, with His mom and His disciples, hears that the wine has run out, and at the request of His mother, with hardly anyone noticing, He performs His first sign and turns water to wine. John says, this, the first of His signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, 
and manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. This, dear saints, is your Jesus, and this is His kingdom. A turning water into wine kingdom. A turning sadness into joy kingdom. A turning away the judgment of God and delivering His mercy to you kingdom. It is a kingdom of humility, a kingdom of kindness, a kingdom of mercy, and it is a kingdom of joy. Whenever the Lord Jesus wants to capture the idea of joy, He puts forth in the Scriptures two things, marriage and wine. (laughs) The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a marriage feast for his son. Or the very last chapters of the Bible where the resurrection itself is pictured as the new Jerusalem adorned as a bride for her husband coming down for earth. Eternal life in the resurrection is called by God the wedding feast of the Lamb. And in the Old Testament, when the joy of the kingdom of the Messiah wants to come forth, the prophets speak of the brooks and the streams flowing with wine. And this, dear saints, is the joy of the gospel. The joy that Jesus brings to us when He comes with His gifts and His kindness, with His blood and death and resurrection, with with the forgiveness of sins. I got to go last week and see and see the Christians uh, in Taiwan. And I got to spend some time with them and, and spend some time with the missionaries that are scattered throughout all of the region of Asia. And something came very clear to me in the conversations with all of these people that the devil, like he does with us, also does with them. He attacks our joy. The devil is not content to only attack our faith and our love for one another, He also assaults our hope. He assaults our joy. And he does this with two things. He assaults it with both sadness and seriousness. So that I wonder, when the world sees the church, if they see this church, the Lord's churches scattered throughout the world, as his kingdom of joy. In fact, I wonder if we see the church as the Lord's kingdom of joy. But it is. The Scriptures overflow with joy, like those six water pots overflowing with wine. And this joy is for us. Psalm 13, verse 5, uh, we pray, I have trusted in your steadfast love, O Lord. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Or Psalm 16.11, we pray, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or Nehemiah preaching a sermon of strength to the people as they rebuilt Jerusalem says to them, The joy of the Lord is your strength. The devil hates Joy. (laughs) The devil hates the true Christian joy that's born of the Gospel and that lives in repentance. The devil hates it that Jesus turns water into wine. But that, I think, dear saints, makes the wine taste even better. (laughs) Because Jesus, when He delivers you from sin by the forgiveness of your sins, He takes you to joy. Jesus, when He delivers you from death to life, 
delivers you to joy. And Jesus, when He brings His promises to you, creates faith in your heart that trusts His Word and knows that heaven is open and not closed, that the resurrection is sure and not sketchy, that knows that His love is unmoved and unmovable, then Jesus hands us over to joy. (laughs) So this, the turning water to wine, is the first of His signs which Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And He manifested His glory. And we, His disciples, believed in Him. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope. We hope your time with us was one of joy and peace in hearing the Lord's Word and kindness. If you have questions about anything you heard on today's broadcast, please don't hesitate to contact us at office at hope-aurora.org or call the office at 303-364-7416. For more information about our congregation, for locations, service time, and schedule, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. Thank you for listening to The Word of Hope.